Alright everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers where we have author R.A. Salvatore talking about his latest book, Timeless, which is, of course, a Dritz novel, which is just the continuation of the story we've read for, well, decades. I, uh, if I remember right, it's been 31 years since The Crystal Shard came out, uh, which it's quite a while to be writing about one character. You think? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, did you ever imagine that the series would survive this long and have such a long-lasting impact? I mean, especially with, like, these characters. Of course not. Are you kidding? When I wrote the first book, I didn't even have a contract for the second book. I thought I finally got to be a published author, and now I could go my merry way working in finance, which is what I was doing at the time. I had no idea. I, I mean, I put the hook at the end of the crystal shard with Bruno waking up and saying we gotta go find my homeland and Regis seeing some assassin in the middle of the town uh, I just put a couple of hooks in hoping they would give me a second book yeah now, I mean, and obviously the hooks worked because here we are 31 years later still uh, running alongside Dritz and his friends well I mean the series almost died at the end of the halfling's gem uh, TSR told me to tie everything up because we were going to go on to something different. Uh, people were ready for different characters. But then they got so much mail saying they wanted to know where Dritz came from that they came back and set me up to do the Dark Elf trilogy. So I did that. Quit my job, actually, then, and did that. And But again, we thought it was over. And then I went on to the Cleric Quintet, and the demand for the Dark Elf just kept growing and growing. And Walden Books called TSR and said, we want to do a hardcover. It's got to be a Dark Elf book written by Salvatore. Wow. So twice that series almost died. at three and six. And then again, in a couple of years later, after Passage to Dawn, I had a big bad breakup with TSR. The other there and I did not get along at all. And um, so I thought three times I, I thought the series was gone. Four times, actually, because I thought it was gone when I was writing Hero and I knew that Wizards wasn't publishing books anymore, but it just keeps coming back. Dritz is like the character from Halloween. He just keeps getting back up. <laughs> yeah. That or a cockroach. Uh, just keeps surviving the end of uh, several apocalypses. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I, I mean, how do you survive something like that as an author... Well, I not I guess not the word survive. How do you like take that and just like be like I'm, I guess amazed or uh, astonished because you don't well, think they the the these characters will continue to survive. Yeah, but remember that the, the I'm not just doing Dritz books. I've yeah. got my Demon Wars series, Crimson Shadow. You know, I was on in June talking about Child of a Mad God set my Demon Wars world. Yeah. So creatively, I've got a million different things going. I love these characters. I love the Forgotten Realms. Getting to go back there and play is fun. Oh, my phone's ringing. Excuse me. is <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. And for me, it's like writing the next season of a television show. It, it, you know, I don't have to recreate all the characters. I don't have to come up with all... I have to come up with new stories to help the characters grow a little bit. That's all. And to me, it's just following their journey down the road. Yeah. And the hardest thing about writing the Dritz books now is that, you know, I've, I've changed as a writer with my Demon Wars books. I'm, I'm tackling different themes and, and 
the more intricate storylines. And what I really want from the Dritz books is I want someone picking up that book to feel like they're on their way to their high school D&D game or college D&D game again, kind of a, you know, transport them back in time to a, a time and place where things were, they were having a lot of fun in their lives and yeah. things were simple for them. That's, that's the way I try to write those books. So the hardest thing about writing those books is making sure that I'm using the language that I used when I first started writing them and making sure that I use the battle descriptions that I used when, I'm first, when I first started writing them and making sure that I'm focusing on the, you know, the same philosophical conundrums for the characters that I was back then. It's, you know, with new stories and... I'm not, I'm not talking the same things. I'm talking the same types of things. Yeah. So in other words, when you pick up a Dritz book, I want you to feel that way. I want you to feel like you picked up when you picked up your first one in 1988 or 1992 or ni- or 2001. That's how I want you to feel. When I'm writing Demon Wars, it's a very different experience for me as a writer. Both are incredibly fulfilling and satisfying, and I'm a pretty lucky guy, so... Yeah, no, I I agree, especially with, uh, you know, Demon Wars, that series doing really well, as well as uh, the Dritz novels, so, I, what was it like when you made that decision to quit your job and write full-time, because that had to have been a little bit scary at the time. Terrifying. I, I had, um, I had three books out. I wrote The Crystal Shard, and it did really well. It was like number two on the Walden's list or something, and, you know, but just paperbacks back then. There were no hardcovers at that time. And, of course, an author makes significantly less money on a paperback than on a hardcover yeah. per unit. So I wrote The Crystal Shot. I got a minimal advance, a couple thousand dollars, and didn't have a very good royalty rate because it was work for hire. And, you know, I, I thought it, it got me published. And that's what I really wanted was to get my work out there. Yeah. But it, I didn't even think about it was going to be some kind of a life-changing economic thing for my family. Um, you know, it, it was, it wasn't really anything about that. I, and I had no expectations of that whatsoever. Well, the book did a lot better than we anticipated. The forgotten realms were exploding. Um, 1987, 88, 89, the forgotten realms became, you know, huge. Yeah. So they asked me to do a second book, and I was thrilled because I enjoyed writing the first one. And I wrote Streams of Silver, and that did a little better. It got to number one on the Walden's list. And the Crystal Shard kept selling. So the checks were getting a little better, and not, but certainly not a livable income. And I had three kids, three young children at home. And there was no way that I ever thought I was going to be quitting my job. Well, then the Halfling's Gem came out. And it hit the New York Times list. This was February of 1990. Now, the New York Times list is was a huge deal back then yeah. for sales. Because if you hit the New York Times list, you got in the drugstores, you got in the supermarkets, you got in the Kmart Reader's Market. There was no internet running where people were buying books, you know, no e-books or anything like that. So, so they have these generation books sold a ton of copies. And I remember I got a check that was almost equal to my yearly salary. And, you know, now I'm thinking, well, maybe I can actually make a living at this. And, you know, I have family to support. And that's the 
most important thing. That was my responsibility at that time. My wife and I, that was our, that was our job was to support our family and try and give our kids a good life. Yeah. And I wasn't making a lot of money as a writer or as a fine in finance. But what happened was when I sold the first book, they said, Oh, it did really well. Don't quit your day job. When I sold the second book, they said, Oh, it did really well. Don't quit the day job, your day job. When I sold the third book and I hit the times, TSR called me up and said, we want you to write three more books. Maybe it's time for you to quit your day job. Wow. And I remember, and, and I still wasn't going to do it. But as it turned out, the company was having serious trouble. I was put under a boss who had been a dear friend of mine, but she and I did not get along in the new situation at all. I, I sometimes think her job was to get people to quit. It was, they were furiously downsizing. So the situation at work got horrible, and I left. And I remember walking out of the building terrified because I had three little kids and no insurance. And that almost happened a few years later when I decided to walk away from TSR because of creative, well, more than differences with a certain editor who was there. Um, I, I couldn't say. I couldn't do what they needed me to do to stay with them. It was unethical in my mind. Yeah. When I walked away from them, I didn't have a job, and we, were, we certainly weren't rich. And my wife looked at me and said, look, if, if we wind up back where we were, we're back where we were. We'll make it work. We made it work then, you know? Yeah. And so I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm walking away. And that's when Del Rey called me and asked me to do Demon Wars, uh, Thanks to Terry Brooks, I think. Terry Brooks and I had become friends. He told Del Rey, look, this guy's leaving. TSR, he's available. You should grab him. They read my work. They agreed. They called me up and they signed me up. And I got through the, the those years. No, that's awesome and very fortunate. Uh, for me. Yeah. Well, I, I, for the rest of us, we've... Because that would have been the end of my writing career. Yeah, I but... mean... We w we've got to continue to get all these amazing stories with Demon Wars and Dritz. Uh, sometimes the road is ahead of us. We don't know, but uh, it's very interesting the way things work out. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, people always say, and you always hear, you learn more from failing than you do from succeeding. And it it's not until you're in those positions where where you're at a critical place and everything seems lost that I think you appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. So you know, I've been I've been very fortunate. I've worked really hard. I've been very fortunate. Um, I don't take it for granted, any of it. I mean, if I had sent my book to TSR, a book called Echoes of the Fourth Magic, if I had sent that book to TSR three months earlier or three months later, I wouldn't have gotten the gig. Hmm. Because three months earlier, they weren't really think they hadn't formulated what they wanted to do with the realms. Yeah. Uh, they knew they had Doug Niles' book, and they were putting out a box set, but they really weren't looking for authors at that point. And three months later, the numbers started coming in on Doug Niles' Dark Walk or on Moonshade book. And so many of the people at TSR, you know, Troy Denning, uh, Jeff Grubb, Jim Lowther, they had incredible, ta incredibly talented people. But most of them were doing Dragonlance books because yeah. Dragonlance books were the big deal. So, you know, do you want to do a Dragonlance book and – be very likely on the New York Times and sell 100,000, 200,000 copies or whatever they were selling? Or do you want to take a chance on this new world and sell 2,000 copies? 
it becomes a no-brainer for them. Yeah. But once the Doug Niles book numbers started coming in, people, that, that's when they realized, wait a minute, the Forgotten Realms are for real. People like this world. And, you know, I would have been competing against Troy Denning. Yeah. And Doug Niles. And there was no way I was going to compete with them at that time. Well, not Doug, because Doug already was signed with three books. But Troy Denning is, is, is just one example. Jeff Grubb's another one. These, they're, they're great authors, and they were known entities to the publisher. So as a pra- just as a practical matter, if I had sent my book in three months later, it's very unlikely I would have gotten a gig to do the second Forgotten Realms book. Because they would have had people in-house who they knew, who they trusted, and whose work they were very well aware of scrambling to do that book. Yeah. Hmm. That's life. It's a. It's yeah. A, it's interesting how. It'd be a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that that works out. Where if it was earlier or later, it just probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and that was my last chance. By the way, hmm. I had written the book in 1983, Echoes of the Fourth Magic. I sent it out to several publishers. Got some horrible rejection letters. Uh, one person was a friend of my sister's and had some connections in New York. I think she was actually the nanny for Mark Hamill at the time or something. Wow. She, she grabbed a copy of my book and gave it to an agent friend of hers who called me up and said, don't quit. There's something here. It's flawed. And here's some things you need to do to fix this book, but don't quit. You've got the talent. If I hadn't gotten that phone call, I would have probably put it aside. I had, Mounting responsibilities back then, yeah. at that time. My family was just coming together and growing. And, you know, I was working long, long hours. Um, so that phone call kept me going. I kept, I started working on the book again. I, I took what she said to me, the agent said to me. And I got the book where I thought it could go out again. And one of the places I sent it was TSR. And I got the phone call from Mary Kirchhoff. But when I sent that book out, that was I had made a decision that if this doesn't work, I really can't my family can't afford me putting more time into this. Yeah. Or as much time into this. If this doesn't work, I need to build a career to take care of my kids. And I was I was building a career then. I was working in I was working in high tech, I was working in finance, I'm good with numbers. But that was it. So if they hadn't gone, then I would not be a published author. I'm, I'm fear- maybe now that I'm older and my kids have grown up and they're on their own, I would have gone back to it. Yeah, I hope I would have, but I don't know. But I certainly wouldn't have been a published author before 2010. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, Salvatore, financial guru. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I actually started college as a math computer science major. Oh wow! Yeah, that that's vastly different than uh, you know writing. But hey, not really, not really, not really. Um, my favorite, my favorite English professor in college, when I switched over to communications media, uh, was an eight scored an eight hundred on his math boards. Wow! And there is a level of organization involved in mathematics that helps you an awful lot when you're writing a novel because mm. you need to be compartmentalized and to organize. Yeah. So I, I don't think, I think you'll find that a lot of writers are really good at math. That's good to know. So with timeless, we'll kind of draw back to that. Um, you've kind of jumped back 
in time a little bit here uh, in the story. And I'll admit it, I've been wanting to hear this story since, like, in the Legacy of the Drow series uh, trilogy, you kind of threw that hint out with Jarlacle pretty much telling Dritz that he was friends with Zachnafane, and then we never heard anything more, and it's like, where is this story? And now we finally get it. So what made you finally, or inspire you to jump back to that story? I was finally able to do it. Okay. Um, Wizards of the Coast is, is doing a lot of licensing for computer games, hopefully for shows and movies. I mean, they've become very much a licensing entity with the realms. Okay. And because of that, their storylines were moving forward. Um, like now, the, what just came out, the uh, the heist of Waterdeep? Yeah. The, okay, I, I was actually consulting with Wizards and was up there when they were putting that story together a couple of years ago. Because they want to keep moving forward with the storyline to keep everyone on the same page so that if you play the Neverwinter game or you play any other computer game that might come out, it still all ties back to the realms in a, in a current and, um, you know, kind of synergistic, I hate that word, but it's the only one that describes it, manner. So they didn't want, they didn't really want me to go back in time and write the Jarlaxle Zachnafane friendship. Because, and it wasn't that they didn't want to see it. And it wasn't that they didn't think it would be any good. It was because they wanted me helping them push the world forward. Okay. Now that it's changed and I'm a licensee, instead of working for them, <laughs> um, I'm able to do what I want to do. So the three books that I'm writing for HarperCollins will be half back in time with Zach Nefane and Jarl Axel telling that story and half finishing up the story from Hero. Okay. And the result of the end of Hero. Yeah, now that brings up a good question. So how is Dritz... I mean... Unfortunately, I haven't got to that part. I'm still reading the book, but how is Dritz coming to terms? Because, I mean, it's been well over a century since his father has died. He's now back. How is he handling this? Better than Zach the fans handling it. <laughs> I bet. I, want, I actually some. I've, I've, I got an angry PM from somebody because they thought... they. Apparently, this person wanted Zach Nefane to be and Dritz to be all okay with everything. Mm -hmm. Zach Nefane came from a different world. He, he's an anachronism in this in this time now. He he hasn't been around to go through the journey with Dritz. So Zach Nefane comes back and finds out his Drow son is married to a non-Drow. Yeah. Now, even though Zach Nefane wouldn't would be even more angry if his drow son was you know wantonly killing non-drow who didn't deserve it um that's kind of a shock for him and so he's the one who's handling this not as well as one might expect because that seems real to me yeah you take a guy from take a take a Okay, we'll go with the dominant race. In the drows, in the mind of the drow, even the good drow, the drow were dominant creatures. They yes. were they were the race. Yes. Even Dritz felt that way. If you remember, he wouldn't kill a drow. Yep. He vowed he would never kill a drow. Oh, no problem killing the human if the human deserved it. No problem killing the dwarf, but he wouldn't kill a drow. 
that was a form of racism. That's very common. It's, it's universal almost. The That you have to overcome. And Dritz overcame it. Yeah. If you, took, if you take our dominant culture, you take a white man from the 1950s, 40s or 50s, and you put plop him down in the middle of America today, and he's going to have an awful hard time coming to terms with America today. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's going on around us. This is the war that's raging around us in our country. And I'm, I'm just saying it's there. This is reality. Yeah. And it's reality because it's the nature of reasoning beings. Zach and Fane is a reasoning being. He's having a hard time with the world that he has found himself in with Dritz. I don't know that the surface world has changed all that much, but for somebody who spent his whole life living in the Dark Elf City, being dropped into the middle of this with a, an old friend who has evolved tremendously. Yeah. And with a son who has evolved tremendously is a bit of a shock. No, no, I agree. And, I mean, that's one thing I've really appreciated with all of your books reading throughout the years um, is it seems like every story has some bit of influence from the time it was written that corresponds with, you know, the world as it is at that time. Well, that's the whole point of writing for me. I mean, look, there's a, there's a throwaway line in the book that was just a joke about a funny word that... Remember, I wrote this book a year and a half ago. Yeah. So there's a funny line in the book, and a lot of people have caught it and thrown it up on my Twitter feed, and where there's a word that, that came into our vernacular in a really kind of ridiculous and humorous way that I threw into the, I threw into the book associating it with um, with something else that's relevant. I'm not going to give too much away. It's a joke. Yeah. It, it, was, it was me having fun because if you can't laugh, you cry a lot of times. And, but it's not really a joke anymore because of how much more malignant it's all become around me in the last year. Yeah. Um, there is a malignancy in, right now in our society. There is, there is nobody, I mean, people are, are hurting themselves into camps. And the only way I can describe it is when, when my son, Gino, was very young, we got a Nintendo. And we were playing, we were letting them play Mario on the Nintendo. This was way back. Oh, this yeah. is 1980. This is Maybe a little later because the kids were very young okay. then. I mean, Gino was born in 85. So this was probably like 1990, okay. 91. And we were letting them play a little bit of Nintendo. We thought it was cute. And then one day I realized that Gino had become to had come to see the world in levels. Huh. He was talking about the world like they were Mario levels. And I thought it was cute and I thought it was insightful. And I thought, oh, my God, shut that Nintendo off and put it away. And we did for years. What I'm seeing now around me is that the world has become – that this country is seen through two very different prisms and they're hardening. And so what I put in the book a year ago as an offhand joke 
is being taken way too seriously by some people in a good as a good way and way too seriously by some people in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It's almost frightening to me. No, it, it is definitely scary where things are heading, to be honest. Um, Agreed. Yeah, I... Uh, you know, I have younger kids, and I I wonder what their world's going to be like when they're adults. Because I mean, my world now is vastly different than it was when I was younger. Um, well, I've seen where it's been going for a long time, and it makes me afraid for my kids and my grandkids. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, it, it it is it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, especially when you parallel it, kind of like with the dark elves of Menzo Barazan a little bit. It's it's kind of scary. Uh, it seems like we're more going, inching our way towards that, in a way. Um, yeah, without, without getting too far into politics, I <laughs> would say that, no, I would say that I hear a lot of people my age complaining about lazy millennials. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but here's a statement I want to make. When I was a kid in college... I worked a job as a bouncer, and I was paid $5 an hour. In today's society, that $5 an hour would be worth about $25 an hour, if you go back to the year when I was, the years when I was bouncing. Wow. When I was working in a print shop, when I was in college, which cost me $700 a semester for tuition, I was making, I was working in a print shop as a gopher. I was hauling pallets around. I was sweeping floors. I was taking the boss's car to the car wash. I was the lowest man on the totem pole in the print shop. And I was making $7 an hour, which was $23 an hour in today's money. Yeah. When I was, the following summer, I worked as a temp at the post office. And if I remember correctly, I was making $13 an hour which is in excess of $40 an hour in today's money. These were the jobs for kids. The average age of a fast food worker in this country is 30. Yeah. They're making $7.25 to $10 an hour in today's dollars. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most jobs now, even basic ones, are looking for people with bachelor's degrees. And when you're just out of co- yeah, out of high school, you get a bachelor's plus pays eleven dollars an hour. Yeah, you know, how are you going to pay for the forty thousand dollars in student loans you have? Yeah. So everyone is hard on the millennials. I hope the millennials go out there and every one of them looks very carefully at what this world is going to be for them and votes and votes and votes and votes and votes. Yeah. Period. Because I think they're getting a bad rap, and I think this is always the way it is. I remember watching I Love Lucy from the early 1960s, and she had to give a, a commencement speech. And she started the speech saying, "Every my, you know, my friends are all afraid of this generation coming up, but I know them. And I'm thrilled and more optimistic than ever. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, Life is complicated. Society is complicated. And you can never get a straight answer on anything, it seems. But 
if I'm going to be a writer, the reason I'm a writer is because I'm trying to make sense of the world around me in this journey through life that I'm having. Yeah. So what I do in my books is I ask, I, I try to take these characters and put them under pressure and make them give me the answers. And I don't have all the answers, and I'm not always right. In fact, I'm quite often very wrong. But I'm willing to admit that. And, I, and when I do admit that, I'm trying to learn better. So all I want out of my books is that it gets if – I, if I get someone who's reading one of my books to ask these questions of himself or herself – and seek his or her own answers, I'm doing a good job. Yeah. But yes, I try to make them relevant. I don't shy away from what's going on around me. No, that's great. If I had my brothers, I'd be writing an op-ed column in a major newspaper. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've definitely appreciated the way you've written them, and especially like the beginnings where you have those kind of monologues that Dritz is giving. Uh, there's been so many of those where... A point in my life I've read that and it's just like been very poignant and very it just hit me like all right I needed that so it's always been fantastic to read these books and it's because the reader brings as much to it as the writer does and when you're reading them I'm doing something that's getting you to answer your own questions yeah yeah no and that's fantastic I've always enjoyed that now one thing I because I always find myself gravitated back and rereading them. And one thing I really noticed, uh, especially when I was younger, is you were kind of the first author I ever read that seemed to break the point of view. You know, most books, it's always been the one character. And you were like the one of the first that bounced around, it seems like. Now it seems kind of commonplace, but you were the first person to do that. What What was the reasoning behind that? I grew up with television. That's That's a good answer. Television is point of view shift. That's all it is. Yeah. And I and to me, I want to know the motivations of every character in the book. I want to know those characters. I'm making friends when I'm writing. Yeah. And it just seemed like a natural thing for me to do. And when I turned in the crystal shot, I actually got the, the first comment back to me from Eric Severson, who was editing the book, was you're changing point of view all over the place. I said, you're darn right I am. And he said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? And he said, because you'll confuse the reader. I said, were you confused? And he said, well, no, but I'm trained. And I said, well, then you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. I'm not <laughs> going to confuse the reader. And he said, well, and he gave me this, you know, the argument you would get in the master's English class. And, and my answer back was the people who are reading these books, and at that time it was mostly teenagers. Yeah. Fantasy was really selling to teenagers. These were these were young adult novels. The people reading these books grew up with television. For the most part, they're not afraid of point of view shifts. And so I made my case. He said, we'll try it. We use the five stars to indicate a point of view shift. You know, to break the paragraph up. Yeah. I mean, the page up with the five-star break. And it worked. It worked. And yes, I was one of the first ones doing it, as far as I know. I mean, I don't know, maybe somebody else was doing it somewhere else. I don't know. I wasn't reading everything. Um, but it worked. And one of my proudest moments as a writer was a couple of years later when the style guide that TSR put out for all authors included how to handle point-of-view shifts. 
that made me very happy because I felt like I had contributed to a change that I thought was important. Yeah. It also changed the way I was going to write the Dark Elf trilogy because the Dark Elf trilogy was going to be first-person point of view. My, one of my favorite authors is Roger Zelazny. Chronicles of Amber is brilliant. It's yeah. wonderful. It's first-person. It's really hard to write first-person. It's, um, it's impossible for me to write first-person for an extended period, mostly because I love detailing fight scenes. Yeah. You can't write a fight scene involving multiple characters from a first-person point of view very well. Because the first person can't be unless he's up in the balcony watching the fight. Yeah, you can't really describe the fight the way I like to. No, I, so yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, 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 and and my writing has also changed over the years in in breaking other rules of English four hundred one or Masters English. Um, the road to hell is paved paved with adverbs. I get that. Um. If if, a, if I was writing a character for a sophisticated reader, and by sophisticated I mean someone who was trained in reading the novel from a young age, okay, the old novel, not the newer novels, which are very different, I would agree with that rule. And it's not really a rule, but I would agree with that advice that you don't want to say sarcastically. If you're if somebody is making a sarcastic comment, the reader should know it's sarcastic. Yeah. However. Most of my readers now grew up on message boards and now social media. Does Most of my readers do most of their reading, reading, most of their information gathering, most of their written words come from social media and message boards. If you don't say JK or put an emoji, which is an adverb, in a post, you will start a flame war. Yeah. People today do not get sarcasm in text easily. So I'm breaking that rule and I'm using more adverbs and I'm doing it because I know that a lot of the readers need that. And it's not because they're, this is not a pejorative against the readers. It's because the way they're taking in information is different from even the way I did. And the way I did, where most of my information when I was growing up was television, is very different than the way my father did when it was almost entirely books. Yeah. It's just adapting to the times. At the same time that I may point a finger and say, this young man is dumb because he can't understand sarcasm, this young man that I'm pointing that to is absorbing Many times the information in an hour than I used to when I was his age. Because it's coming at him in, you know, at the speed of light. Yeah. So and then the other rule I'm breaking all the time now is you're not supposed to give attribution in dialogue or minimally. And this in, in audio books, this is actually where I have a a. If I ever have a say in how they do audiobooks, please take out the he said and she said and Dritz said and Caddy Bree said and just use your voice to convey that. Yeah. But again, most of my readers, the vast majority of my readers, message boards, social media, everything is attributed. They're not used to reading unattributed dialogue. So they can, if I have three people talking, it would I would lose them. 
So I've adapted my writing again by attributing more dialogue. Yeah. And again, breaking the rules of English 401. Well, and those rules were set long, long ago uh, without all these changes in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I like that, that your your writing has adapted. And I think as a writer, we all have to do that adapting because otherwise we lose our audience. Um, you know, you're right. The ch- kids now, uh, you know, especially my, my younger kids, take in more, vastly more information than my oldest does. Um, and it's crazy to see, you know, like cell phones, you know, with my smartphone, it took me a while to finally get used to it. But, they're, you know, my kids are picking it up and they're running it like it's just normal for them. Watch a 20-year-old text. It's the amount of information that person is absorbing and regurgitating. The speed at which they're putting out paragraphs. Oh, I know. Yeah, my my oldest son is 20. think, Think about the other pieces of the mind that are coming into play with that. They know... Their mind is telling them faster than my eyes can tell me if they type three letters that it already knows what word, go on to the next word. Yeah. Think about that. Their mind is actually functioning differently than my mind as a 59-year-old guy would function. No. That's kind of amazing. I know. I I mean, I... I look at some of the texts my kids send out, and I'm just like, what are you saying here? Because, you know, they're basically doing a really different version of shorthand. And I'm just trying to understand this conversation, and I'm like, I I don't get it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm saying this and this and this. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't even see how you formulated that entire paragraph out of 18 18, words that are just random letters. And by the way, this is this is why you should never be a never be pedantic on the internet if somebody has a typo. Okay. Okay. Because what they're doing is they're they're blowing their thoughts out there in at high speed. Yeah. And at high speed, you may make a you may make the wrong word choice in there or there, even if the person knows it. Yeah. You, you may make you may have an autocorrect, but even if, even without autocorrect. You may make mistakes and you may misspell something here or there. And, and But the point is that the communication is there and it's getting out at faster and faster speeds. And the sophistication involved in doing that is very different than the sophistication and understanding uh, attribution and dialogue or in understanding uh, sarcasm in a, in a comment. So that's why I don't make it a pejorative. It's different. It's not better or worse. It's different. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's different. I uh, watch my daughter text, and the paragraphs are appearing on the screen of her phone faster than I could even read them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is interesting, how fast and quickly they do, you know, conversations are going back and forth. Um, I mean, yeah. I feel like I'm, I do fairly well. Uh, communicating uh, through text, but definitely uh, with someone younger or even my kids, it's just like before I can even get one message to them, they've already like thrown three or four back at me. So it's crazy. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other thing is I, I've noticed, the other thing that I've noticed is that if 
If I'm talking to a younger friend, a younger acquaintance, and they want to ask me something, I say, well, give me a call. And they, they're like horrified. Well, I text. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. human brain is an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah, that phone call thing. Like my daughter, she's 16, and she likes this boy. And I'm like, just call him. Tell him, hey, you want to go out? And she's like, looks at me like I just asked her to go out and kill our dog. I'm, she's like, I'll just text exactly. him. I'm like, just call him. It's easier. Nope, not for them. Yeah. You know, say something to him at school. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, human contact in person? Nope, I'll just text. It's a different world. Yeah. And I'm not afraid of it. And and I think, go for it. Make your world. It's your, it's their world now, not mine. Yeah. We're, 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 I'm just getting to go along for the ride and enjoy it. It's their world now. Yeah, I mean, isn't there... Uh, I can't remember the exact saying, but something like we're borrowing it from our children or something like that. That's how it goes. I don't know the saying, but yeah. Yeah. So We're just borrowing it and then handing it to the next to come up. Yeah. And the next had better come up right now. I feel we are at a critical time, and the next had better come up right now, and they better take command of the country. Wow. And the world at large. Hmm. So, with Timeless out, what's next? Because we do know this is part of a trilogy, so there's at least two more. I'm assuming you're already working on or almost finished with the second one. But what? Absolutely. What's but on that, after that? Um, well, next up for me is Reckoning of the Fallen God, which is coming out in January, which is the sequel to Child of a Mad God. Nice. And that series just blew my mind, by the way, that the... the when I, when I was writing the second book, I went, oh, my God, really? And, yeah, really. And, you know, Gino's been helping me with the series in outlining and banging ideas back and forth. And uh, he was like, wow, really? And then he said, yeah, really? And we, we just kind of went wild. And I, I, am, I sent it to my editor, and I was afraid that my editor up at Tor Books, and I was afraid that Chris was going to be what are you doing? Because I veered so far from what I had anticipated. And he came back and he's like, oh, my God, do this. I want more of this. <laughs> so um, I'm really excited about that one. And I'm really excited to jump into writing the third book, which I'll be starting right when I'm done this book now, which is the sequel to Timeless. So, yeah, I've got um, Reckoning of Fallen God in January, the sequel to Timeless, probably around this time next year. The third book for the... Uh, the Demon Wars Mad God series in, um, the, you know, The Coven, it's called, the trilogy. The third book in that should be early the following year, and the third book in this should be later the following year. Wow. After that, I really don't know. My, It's, I don't know what is after that, and when people are trying to nail me down on things like contracts, I, I'm refusing, because I want to see where I am at emotionally and what I want at the end of this, when the when the last of the Dritz books comes out, maybe by then I will have figured out what I'm doing next, but maybe I haven't, and there's no way I want to do it prematurely. Yeah. So if if you know they're offering me new contracts, whatever, my answer is talk to me in a year, because in a year I'll be done writing the third Dritz book, and then I may start thinking about what's next. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean that's fair enough, uh, especially with this long of a journey. 
to decide where the path will lead next, whether it will continue on or if you're going to take another fork and go somewhere else. Exactly. Uh, you know, when I'm, I'll be, I'll be 60. I have, I'll have at that point five grandsons. Wow. Uh, I've got kids living on both coasts. Um, and if there are other things I want to do creatively, it's getting around time. I better get to them. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, I've had so much fun writing this new Demon War series. I can't even begin to tell you. I'm going to be very sad when I finish this trilogy, and it will end at the trilogy. I may do more Demon Wars books, but this series is told in three books. And it has been wonderful to get back to Dritz and see the response. And, and uh, I think I'm having a ton. I had a ton of fun writing Time, uh, Timeless and the book I'm working on now. Uh so maybe that's enough. Maybe that's what I want to do, another one of those. I don't know yet. And I'm, I'm waiting until I'm in a position where I don't have to think about what I'm doing now to make the decision of what I want to do next. Yeah. And who knows what will come up. I mean, the Amalore stuff was just bought from 38 Studios. Uh, you know, I've been contacted. I've worked on other computer games. I have a lot of fun doing that. Different things show up unexpectedly all the time and those side streets sometimes are fun to venture down yeah now because you mentioned uh you were working with gino has how has that been to be able to work with your son uh in doing the editing and stuff like that i mean that has to be kind of amazing to be able to work with him in in working on that demon war project because i know you guys did the role-playing game together I did the role-playing game for both my sons. Uh, my son Brian worked on that. In fact, my son Brian is the one who de- designed the system. He's a, He is a game designer. He's uh, working on one of the most popular games in the world right now as a lead. Um, the It's great. It's wonderful working with my kids. Uh, we have There's a lot of mutual respect there. And I'm not the boss. But, and... I mean, I'm the boss of the books I'm doing now mm-hmm. because my name is on them. It's my writing. It's my book. I'm the one that has to answer for them. But I I value Gino's input during the process. I've written three books with Gino. I've written comic books, graphic novels with Gino. I worked on the game with Gino. I worked on the cryptic game with Brian when we did the quest line with Fibbledorf Point. Yeah, Brian worked on me with that. I, we did the Demon Wars Kickstarter with Brian and Gino. I, I wish Caitlin would come over and do some work with me because she's an amazing writer. Um, but she's got so many other things going on in her life that's not going to happen anytime soon. But um, I love working with my children. Uh, I, I respect them as human beings. I, I respect their intelligence. I, I, I love what they bring to the table. No, that's great. I mean... The reason I ask is because my, my daughter at 16, she's actually starting to write. and She's so fantastic in what she's doing and creating. I, mean, I wish I would have started at her age in writing. Um, I feel like I'm behind the eight ball. But um, I just want – I've always worried that if I step in and, you know, hey, and talk about it to try to help her that, oh, dad's imposing and I'm – yeah. So it's great to hear that there is – you know, you're ha- you have a great relationship there, and there that door is a possibility. 
Well, okay, well, keep in mind that when I'm working, whether it's on the RPG that we did or whether it's on the books that I'm writing, it's a journey. I write for a different reason than I publish. Okay. okay? I write because it, it, it keeps me sane. It lets me learn. It helps me to grow. I publish because it pays my bills. I, I appreciate and love that so many other people are on the journey with me. Yeah. But there's a downside to that as well. Uh, the So when I'm working with my children, who aren't children, they're adults. I mean, they're in their 30s, all of them. That process, if, when it's working right, is we're learning more about each other as well. And we're having discussions that I just love having with another human being where you can be honest about what your feelings and about how you think things should be working. So it's much, much more than just figuring out which adjective to use or figuring out how long the book should be. It's, it's a question of philosophy and ethics and, and economics and, and society. And it's great to share that with people you care about in an open and honest and I mean, it's judgmental because you argue a lot, but it's not, it's judgmental with respect. And that's very different than just being judgmental. Yeah. So those experiences with my kids have, been, have brought us all closer together. Wow. No, it's fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I've taken up quite a bit of your time. I appreciate you coming on the show as always. It's always a pleasure to get to talk with you and especially about the Dritz books and the uh, Demon War books. Um, you know, so for any of our listeners out there, uh, you can definitely follow uh, Ari Salvatore on Twitter, which is R underscore A underscore Salvatore, or Facebook, which is R dot A dot space Salvatore, or the website, which is... Capital A. Capital A. And, and, of course, his website, which is my favorite and always has been, RASalvastore.com. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do as many book signings anymore, so when people want signed books, just tell you, tell me who you want me to sign it to and I'll personalize the book. That's that my that's my wife's website. Yeah. No, I I think that's a fantastic idea you guys coming up with that because you know, when you run out to Amazon and buy a book, you don't get it personalized like you do when you go to your your site, you know, even if it's a gift, you know, you just say, "Hey, write it for my grandson or my son or daughter or whatever. Happy birthday, Fred. Right? Yeah, and, and you Christmas. do it. Um, here's the thing about that, too. Um, you've heard the term e-signing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I own the copyright on that word. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. I did it in 1999, 98 or 99. My brother was sick. He, had to, he couldn't work anymore. So I set up a company called Seven Swords, and one of the things we did were e-signings. I thought it would be a fun idea, so I copyrighted the word. And the reason I copyrighted the word is so that somebody else couldn't. Mm. And so any authors who are listening, feel free to call it an e-signing. I promise I will never sue you. It is a word that we all should use openly, and it, I didn't. It, there's no proprietary... You know, I did it to stop someone from copywriting the word and preventing other authors from using it. Okay. Very nice. Because more and more authors now are selling their own books. Yeah. 
even books that are published by other publishers, yeah. you know, by not just self-published books. More and more authors are selling their own books. Yeah, no, I, I'm in the same same boat. I'm going out to conventions and stuff, selling my book. So, um, well, don't feel don't feel legally in jeopardy by using the word e-signing. All right, <laughs> you are protected. It's uh, my gift to the authors who come behind me. Nice. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I will admit a lot of the way the desire to write definitely has come from reading your novels and other uh, authors' novels, but just all the wonderful, uh, you know, insight and uh, advice you've given over the years uh, on our show as well as on other shows um, has always been really great and has helped inspire me to write. And, you know, I just want to say thank you for that, um, paving the way, because I know my writing definitely helps me. I mean, there's times when I'm super stressed, and I'll just sit down, pull up my laptop, and start writing, and my stress just melts away, and it's amazing, that feeling. There's nothing else in the world that does it quite that way. When I got my first rejection letter, Horrible rejection letter. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not fun. My hometown is known as the birthplace of plastics. Okay. Uh, the birthplace of Johnny Appleseed and the birthplace of Robert Cormier, huh. the, the wonderful young adult writer who wrote, you know, I Am the Cheese, The Chocolate War, very important young adult author of the 20th century. Yeah. And when I got my first rejection letter, I knew that the phone number in the movie of I Am The Cheese was Bob's actual phone number. So I had the temerity to call him. <laughs> wow. He kept me on the phone for three hours. Rob, Bob Cormier was one of the most kind, generous, and wonderful people anyone around here has ever known. He was an, was an institution in, in my area of central Massachusetts. He would go to classrooms all the time. He would he was on the board of trustees at the library. And he kept me on the phone for hours, paying forward his good fortune. And I'll never forget, the best advice he ever gave me is character is more important than plot. If you have a character that people care about, they will love your books. And... In fact, when Bob passed away a few years ago, well, many years ago now, they I got a phone call and it was the mayor saying, hey, I want you to sit on the board of trustees for the library. And I grew up with the mayor. It's not that big a town. We were <laughs> all friends. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm so busy. I've got kids. I've, they're all involved in sports. They, Brian's getting ready for college. And I, I, I'm really busy. I, I, there's no way I can do that. I'm on the road a lot. And he said, it's Bob Cormier's seat. I said, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I did it, and I spent 10 years on the board. Uh, Bob, I, I, I like to think that he was my mentor in, in life in a lot of ways, like all, my dad was, my mom was, but and my older sisters and brother were, but Bob was too. And as far as being um, having good fortune in your chosen path, paying that forward is what he did better than any human being I've ever known. And so... If I'm not doing that, then I'm failing the memory of Bob, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. Wow. No, that, thank you for sharing that story. That That's fantastic. Wow. Now, and by the way, when my first Demon Wars book came out, 
Here's one you'll love. 1996, The Demon Awakens came came out, and it was getting great reviews everywhere. Stag Review and Publishers Weekly. I mean, the book was doing fantastically well and getting wonderful reviews, and I was I was thrilled. Well, as occurred, the publisher, Del Rey, had put together a publicity pack for the book, and they were mailing it out. And as a favor to me, they sent it to my local newspaper, where Bob had worked for 50 years, but he wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the newspaper just sent it out to a stringer who absolutely trashed me. Oh, Oh, he said, I I don't know how to write memorable characters like those in Tolkien. It was was really just one of those reviews where you go, oh, life is miserable. Yeah. Uh, uh, Well, apparently Bob Cormier read that and he went into the local newspaper. This, and Bob was like five feet tall, this little old French guy. And he went into the newspaper screaming and yelling, which nobody had ever seen him do and pushing stuff off of desks. You never do this to a local author. What the hell is wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I heard about that weeks later from someone, another friend who said, you hear what Bob Cormier did up at the Sentinel? And I went, Oh, you've got to be kidding me. And it was just, it was just perfect because it was so out of character for him. Yeah, mess with us writers. Go ahead. We'll do worse than kill you in a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I have some friends I wrote some made into characters in my latest book, and they're like, oh, no, don't do that. I'm like, well, it's a good thing I'm putting you in the book. That means I really like you. He's like, but what if you kill me? I'm like, so? I still like you. <laughs> Doesn't change how I like you as a person. But, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a treacherous road though as an author because I'll give you a perfect example. Publishers Weekly hated Child of a Mad God. It's the only bad review I got on really bad, really bad review I got on Child of a Mad God. That's weird. I got star reviews from other places. Publishers Weekly hated it. Publishers Weekly loved Timeless. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't compute in my head. Obviously, it was two different editors. Yeah. But that, I mean, uh, reviewers. But that doesn't compute in my head. But there it is. No, it doesn't compute, compute to me either because it's like, wait a minute. It, you, you're the same writer. It's not like you just wrote something worse. Uh, I, and yeah. it's, not like I, it's not like I completely did something that I don't do. Yeah. And, yeah, it... That's that's one of the things that everyone out there who's an author should understand that you better be prepared to not let the good reviews lift you up in the air and not let the bad reviews put you under the ground. Yeah. Because it's pretty brutal. It's it's being in the second grade and writing something for your teacher and getting it back with red marks all over it all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean my first book I got a one-star review on Amazon and it was a punch to the gut edged in poison I I took two weeks I was just depressed and I was talking to a friend and he's just like what does it matter it's one guy look at all you have all these other ones that are saying it's great it's it because you're putting something very personal out there I've said this many times being a writer is like walking naked down Times Square in the middle of the day and it is. Yeah, I can see that. You're putting yourself out there. And there are all kinds of reasons people won't like books. Um, very often having more to do with them than with the book they read. Maybe they just had their own book rejected by a publisher. 
Yeah. I hated Dragonlance the first time I read it because it, I read it right after I got a bad review. Mm. After I met Margaret and Tracy and saw long lines of people talking lovingly about their characters, I was like, wait a minute. I went back and reread the books and loved them. Yeah. It's... But even aside from that, a big part of the reason why they pay athletes to do their job or writers to do their job or actors to do their job or directors to do their job is because they're giving people something to bitch about. And that's just the truth of human nature. And, of course, you're also going to get one-star reviews because, you know, the book is too expensive. Or, I mean, things they have, or, or you know, other things that you have absolutely no control over Yeah. as the author. So, you know, you, you've got, and you've got a soldier on it. And, and genuinely, there are people who might read your book and just hate the way you write. I've read books that are, you know, critically acclaimed and people love them. And I've read them and I've said, this is drack, thrown it away. It didn't reach me. The way the author was writing was not lighting up the right parts of my brain to enjoy it. Yeah. Period. Period. I don't talk about it publicly. I wouldn't go and give that book a one-star review. I won't tell you what books they are that I don't like. I will never tell you a book I didn't like that is not that is a fiction book. Because doing that, I'm not insulting the author as much as I'm insulting the people who love that book. Yeah. And who the hell am I to do that? Somebody loves that book. Yeah. No, I, I agree because you know, if you enjoy it and love it, it it's kind of rough to hear that. So I, I try to have the same opinion. Uh, of course it is. Yeah. But you also begin to understand how silly the whole thing is. I'll give you a perfect example. When the when Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning came out, the game, the video game, that was done by the company I was the namesake, one of the big you know, big names. It was Todd McFarlane, myself, and Kurt Schilling. Yeah. And then Ken Ralston, when we acquired BHG, were like you know, the front of the company. And Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning came out, and it sold over 2 million copies now, and still selling crazy. And, and it, it, it did really well for a brand new IP. It did amazingly well. And it was a really good game. That is a, a super fun single-player game. There was a review of it that psychoanalyzed me to explain the flaws in the story of the game. And this guy was saying all these things about who I am, and that's why this was bad. And, da, da, da. and I'm reading this review and I'm alternating between really wanting to meet this guy at a party so I can punch him in the face and laughing because I didn't write the game. I was, all I did was help the BHG narrative team set their stories in the world I had created. I didn't write the game, but he is psychoanalyzing me to explain things about the game that I didn't write. Wow. So at what point does it become so ridiculous that you learn to keep it in perspective? For me, that was it. That was a really big part of when I came to understand that we live in a silly world with silly people. Yeah. 
Well, and like you said, they could have had a bad day or who knows what, so and, that, and that affected it. I'm sorry, that was just an arrogant jerk review. He wanted to take a shot at me for one reason or another, yeah. and he took a shot at me no, absolutely oblivious and misinformed about the very basis of his thesis. Yeah. Wow. Well, obviously, books are still selling. That doesn't matter because, you know, books, you know, people still love your books. And oh, it doesn't matter. That's my whole point to you. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It matters that you're, what matters is when you get a letter from a kid who says, I never read a book until. What matters is when you get a letter from a soldier that says, you know, thank you for letting me forget what I had to do today and what I'm going to have to do tomorrow. It matters when a when a group that's uh, when a when a company is stationed over in Afghanistan sends you the flag that was flying over their base because your books were a needed escape for them. Wow. It matters when somebody who's fighting cancer writes you a letter and says, "If Dritz can survive, I can survive." Oh, it awesome. matters. When you, it matters when you come to realize that for however it happened, your work is being allowed into the lives of other people. And for many, and hopefully most, you are doing something, either giving them pleasure, giving them a needed escape, inspiring them to write, inspiring them to read, inspiring them to try harder, or just having fun. What a blessing. Yeah. Because all, to, to my way of thinking about the world, all any of us can do is hope that the the, pa the path behind us in our wake is a little better than it was before we walked it. To me, that's winning, period. So I look at it that way, and that that's why I sit down and type on beautiful days when I'd rather be outside. Yeah. Well, that's a lot to think about. Um, you know, and... My my moment was there. There was a boy that came up to me at this recent uh, Salt Lake Fan X, and he informed me he had read my book thirty one times, and I'm just like, wow. The, apparently, this book was so impactful that he's read it that many times. Um, and he'll never. And you have had a profound effect and impact on that young man's life. Yeah. So. And. You know, I, I, I imagine this is how teachers feel. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. I imagine this is how... I, I think that no matter what job you're doing or career you're doing, you can find things like this. Well, most. You can find things like this, and there's nothing more satisfying. I mean, how, many te how does a teacher feel when a student comes back after 10 years just to say hi, because that teacher was important in that student's life. Yeah, I think authors. I think authors go through that a lot. Nice. Yeah. No, I have to agree. I, I do remember a similar incident when I did that to a teacher, and he was just astounded that I had come back, and I, I had remembered him even after graduating, um, that I would at least come back just for a few minutes to say hi. So, um, yeah, it it is definitely a lot like that feeling. My first book got published. My second grade teacher called me up, asked me to come to her home. And I went there, and she still had the books I had written in her class that she had used like paste to make a little binding for them. Uh -huh. And uh, she was so proud of me. And she was one of the driving forces in my life. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a good thing. 
that is, you know, if you're a coach of a softball team or a hockey team and you find that one kid that is, is getting something out of this that will be important for that kid as they grow older, you've done a good thing. So, you know, you get those one-star reviews and they're punching the gut, but you just say, look, change the channel. There are a million books out there. Go read a different one. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I love is at this point in my career is when somebody says, I've read all your books and they all suck. <laughs> okay, I've written 60 books. If you're if you're a super fast reader, that's hundreds of hours of your time. Yeah. Are you stupid? <laughs> yeah, that baffles me. Why would you read all of them if you hate them? Why would you finish the first one if yeah. you hate it? Yeah. Well, hours of precious things. Yeah, but hey. If you don't like what I'm offering you in this hour, go to the library and find something else. Yeah. Or turn on the TV or go for turn a walk. Turn on the TV. Yeah. Or turn on the TV. I mean, see, I mean, sports fans are even worse, right? Yeah. Oh, he sucks. Oh, he sucks. Um, he's hitting a ball that's coming at him at 95 miles an hour. You would pee your pants if you were standing there. You keep using that word sucks. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. Because the very worst professional athlete is better than you could ever have been. Yeah, no. Give me this. Well, if I had just tried harder when I was 12. No. <laughs> no. Sorry. Yeah, no, I never say that phrase when it comes to any sports because even, even if someone's having a really bad day and they're not doing that great, it's still 100 times better than I'll ever do on my best day. And to get where they are, they have fought through tons of talented people oh, and yeah. climbed, climbed over them to get there. Yeah. And there yeah. are a lot of better football players than the people who are now playing in the NFL. Yeah, it, it's it's just the reality. It is a completely merit based system at those levels. Uh, you know, I, I, I one of my cousins was a triple A ball player. He got in the bigs during the strike. That was the only time he played in the local softball league. We've got guys that play in the local softball league who are really good players. I was a really good softball player. Yeah, when somebody who was a triple A ball player showed up, we all understood we're really good in this little pond of ours. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. No, I, I, I agree. Seriously. It's, it's an entirely different level of talent. And that's why even when I, I, I mean, I get frustrated and throw things at referees and at, at my TV. Um, you know, I throw things at the TV when, when the player makes a bonehead play. I mean, you, I think I banged my head on the ceiling, jumping in rage in the 86 <laughs> world series when my beloved Red Sox went down to defeat. Um, but I know in my heart that you'll never see me booing yeah. <laughs> an athlete who's doing things that I only wish I had the capability of doing, to meet the physical genius to do things like that. Yeah. It's just not who I am. No, well, I, I think a lot of people, if they had that mindset, I think the world would be a better place. Um just because we're all we're all struggling, we're all doing our best at what we do, and some of us aren't as good as others, and we do have bad days. Even, you know, there's times when I'm writing that I'll write something, and the next day I'll read through it, oh, man, that was crap. I'll throw it away and start over, because I had a bad day the day before, and it, and it showed in what I was writing. 
I think the most entertaining, but the world might be a more boring place too, because I think the most entertaining thing that any person can do on a Sunday, and I'm going to say Sunday because that's the primary day for it, is go to your football team, your local football team's message board, and read the game day thread. Okay. It is it is the most enjoyable, dysfunctional, overreaction, idiocy you will ever see in your life. It is hilarious. If the other team gains five yards on a run, people are threatening the lives of the defensive coordinator of your team. It wow. is it is the funniest thing you will ever read. And my football team, my local football team, has dominated the sport for 20 years. And the people on the game day thread are the most miserable human beings in the world watching that game. It's hilarious. That's that's interesting. Try it out. Trust uh, me on this. I'll have to do it. I'll definitely have to do it. See uh, what craziness goes on there. Uh-huh. <laughs> All righty. Well, again, thank you for your time. I mean, I've, I've taken a good portion of your day, but it, 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 it always is a pleasure to, to talk with you and uh, catch yeah, up. Right back in. Yeah, I agree. This is always a fun interview. So, everyone, if you haven't picked up a copy of Timeless, go out and pick it up. Uh, I got my copy last week, and I have just been enjoying every minute of it. It's like, ooh, I have an extra free five, ten minutes, and I pick it up and start reading it. It's definitely, you you are a master at hooking, at least me. Uh, there may be others that, that don't feel that way, but at least me, man, from the first paragraph, I was hooked, and I, I, I want to read it and finish it. So, uh, if you love these type of action-adventure books, this is definitely down your alley, especially if you read the, the previous Dritz books. And with that said, we'll catch you next time. I hope you will.